Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we do a discussion on one of the chapters in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This week we're in chapter 11. We're progressing week by week in these chapters each Sunday, covering one of the major chapters in the book. And then on Wednesday, we do either breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, or Buddhist chanting together. This week, chapter 11 is all about meditation. It's titled, Meditation, Developing Your Practice. While meditation is really important for one's practice, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without meditation. You also wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment with only meditation either. And that's why a good part of the program that we've been teaching so far involves a lot of other teachings besides meditation. But now that you've had your practice underway for a period of time, it's important that you really dive deeply into understanding meditation, not just how to do it, but what are the different types? Why are we meditating? And even starting with something simple as just what is meditation? So today we're going to be diving in deep into all the various facets of meditation. I'm going to be sharing with you content from this chapter 11, but also I'm going to be bringing in some of the words of the Buddha so that you can see that he taught meditation and the types of meditations that he taught and why he taught them. Because remember, as we journey on this path to enlightenment, you should never believe anything. And you shouldn't believe me, you shouldn't believe the Buddha, you shouldn't even believe what's written in any of these books. Instead, what you do is you learn, you reflect, and you practice. And through you practicing the teachings, you can see the condition of the mind is gradually improving. So all the things that I share with you today, that's the intellectual learning that you're doing. And then you reflect on these, you ask questions, you get clarification in class and also outside of class. And then you move these teachings into practice so that you can see the truth for yourself that what is in the Pali Canon, the original source text from the Buddha, what's in the books that I share, what I teach in these classes is the truth because you can observe that for yourself as the discontentedness in the mind gradually diminishes. And in order to accomplish that, you're gonna need various aspects of this path. And one of the important ones is truly meditation. I can't really say that one particular thing is more important than another, but the Buddha surely said that meditation, particularly breathing mindfulness meditation, is a very high priority in your practice, as you'll see in his words today. So I would like to thank you for joining us for class. 
as we go you'll be able to ask questions through facebook youtube or zoom you can just put your questions into the comment section and our moderators Bossom, manal and james will be able to see those and be sure that your questions get asked during the class and i'll be able to answer those for you if you're in zoom you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly and we'll be able to help you as you progress in learning reflecting and practicing these teachings moving the mind to this enlightened mental state where it can be peaceful calm serene and content with joy no longer experiencing any discontent feelings so let's go ahead and start talking about meditation and helping you to build up your practice or develop your practice one of the things that i like to do as i start a particular topic is i don't make any assumptions that the way that i use certain language is the same way that you use certain language because of this universal truth of impermanence there's certain words that we use that mean different things to different people so right at the beginning of this chapter in the beginning of our class i like to define what is meditation because having a definition of what meditation is, then we can be on the same page about what we're talking about. So the way that I describe meditation is that it's this technique that is actively training the mind during a dedicated, independent, purposeful training session to either eliminate certain unwholesome qualities or cultivate certain wholesome qualities. This is all training the mind. And we do this either in the seated, lying, standing, or walking positions. So that's what I mean when I say meditation, is this dedicated, independent, purposeful training session of the mind where we're eliminating certain unwholesome qualities and we're arising or cultivating certain wholesome qualities. And the Buddha shares as part of the path what are those unwholesome qualities that we need to eliminate during meditation and also outside of meditation and he also teaches what are the wholesome qualities that we need to be cultivating in the mind during meditation and outside of meditation and we're going to be discussing the ones as it pertains to meditation today because that's the why when you think about meditation and the various types of meditation that there are which we're going to be discussing today it's important that you understand the why and the why is there's certain unwholesome qualities that are in the unenlightened mind that are polluting the mind keeping it in this unenlightened state and there's certain wholesome qualities that need to be cultivated and brought into the mind and there's certain wholesome qualities that are currently in the mind that need to be supported and encouraged and continue to grow so they don't fade so meditation is one way of training the mind, a very important method that we use on a consistent, ongoing basis. And we're going to dive into all the different details of how to do meditation, what it involves as we go forward in our class today. But just getting on the same page with what a definition of meditation is, it's this dedicated, independent, purposeful training session of the mind. It's also important to understand what meditation isn't. Just as I share a definition of what meditation is, it's important to understand what meditation isn't. Meditation isn't exercising or walking the dog, gardening or driving or cleaning. It's not this mystical, magical thing where you're invoking certain spiritual energies to come to you and give you some kind of mystical or magical power. That's not what meditation is. 
when you're exercising, you're exercising the physical body and you're working to build the health of the physical body, whether it's the muscular system, the skeletal system, the cardiovascular system, whatever it is, you're exercising in order to encourage the health of the physical body. Sure, it can relax the mind and do certain things for the mind, but that's because the health of the physical body is in a better condition, so therefore the mind's not having to work as hard, and it creates this calmness in the mind. But just exercising by itself, if that's all you did was exercise, you didn't do this dedicated, independent, purposeful training session to train the mind, you wouldn't get to enlightenment through just exercising. You wouldn't get to enlightenment through just walking the dog or gardening or driving. While these things can be great hobbies and great experiences and wonderful activities for us to do on a day-to-day basis, it's not this dedicated, independent, purposeful training session to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities as we're going to discuss today. So if you're involved in those things, then wonderful. You know, Do those things and others to enjoy life and take advantage of all the different facets of life that we can benefit from. But remember that in order to get to this enlightened mental state, you would need to develop a meditation practice where you have this active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session, eliminating unwholesome qualities and arising wholesome qualities. As you progress in developing your practice, you're going to need a meditation teacher. You're going to need somebody to guide you on the path. While today there's lots of resources out there like books and podcasts and YouTube videos and all of these different things, it's really important that as you're working on awakening the mind and training the mind through meditation, that you have somebody that you can trust, that you can rely on, someone that you have confidence in, that as you have challenges in your practice, you can reach out to this person and get support and get help. You can't ask a book questions. You can't ask a YouTube video questions. You can't ask a podcast questions. You need somebody that you trust, that you have confidence in, and that you can reach out to and is willing to support you as you develop your practice. It's not possible for us to awaken the mind without a teacher. It's only possible for a Buddha to awaken their mind to enlightenment without a teacher. And the last Buddha that's currently known to the world existed over 2,500 years ago. And that individual awakened their mind by themselves. And that's one of the main criteria to become a Buddha is that you awaken the mind by yourself without the support or help of any teacher. But everyone else needs support of a teacher. So if you would like to receive support, receive help, you're welcome to reach out to me. If you have other people that you find that are trustworthy for you and that you have confidence in them and they're willing to support you and you're able to develop a relationship with them so they know a bit about you so that when you have challenges, you can easily reach out to them. Find those people and build relationships with them and be sure that you have somebody that you can reach out to because there's definitely stories of people that don't have teachers and they find themselves in real predicaments, real difficulties when they're trying to awaken this mind and the mind kind of unravels on them and it causes more complications for them because they don't have somebody to reach out to and get support. Even if your question to me is something that the reply back is, that's completely normal, just keep going, it will pass. That can be really comforting and really confirm that you're on the right path. 
but more frequently when students reach out for support and reach out for help, there's more detailed teachings and guidance that need to be shared in order to help someone develop their practice. So be sure you have a meditation teacher as part of walking this path and developing your meditation practice because you're going to need more than just meditation. You're going to need other teachings as well in order to awaken the mind. Some more meditation basics is there's these four positions. There's seated, lying, standing, and walking position. And we use these for different reasons and different purposes. And I can share with you the different reasons and the different ways that I use these positions. And you can learn that, you can reflect on that, you can incorporate the different positions and the way that I use them. But you have to see for yourself, how do these different positions work for you? You have to do the work in order to see how these positions work for your situation. So for example, this seated position, this is kind of my go-to position. This is where I do the vast majority of meditation and that's for me. But there's some people that may not really have that same affection for seated meditation. Maybe they have a back problem. Maybe they have a hip problem. Maybe they have certain difficulty sitting. So maybe they use lying or standing or walking. But for me, seated meditation is kind of like the go-to position that I use. I prefer to be on the floor when I meditate with some cushions under the rear in order to lessen the angle at the hips and the knees and the ankle. This gets the rear up in the air and allows me to sit more comfortably on the floor. And then when I'm sitting on the floor, I can be comfortable and content in that, and that's where I do the vast majority of meditation. But there's occasions where I also need to sit in a chair, and that's more comfortable for me than sitting on the floor in that particular situation. So seated meditation for me is really, really helpful. But there were times in the past where the last thing I was interested in doing was sitting down and meditating because the mind was too active or overactive. And instead of doing seated meditation in those situations, I would use walking meditation. And I would go to walking meditation. I would do walking meditation as either a standalone meditation or I would do that for 10, 15, 20 minutes and then do some seated meditation and kind of use these two positions together through one meditation session. There's also times where I do seated meditation, the body might feel a little bit of aches and pains or maybe the back isn't feeling well, and I might switch to walking meditation in order to change the position of the body so that I'm not just sitting there in pain. Or there were times in the past where I became very sleepy during meditation and in seated position I could feel myself dozing off and falling asleep. So I would switch to walking meditation in order to keep the mind active and attentive and alert. So these are different ways that I've used seated and walking. And I've also used lying and standing meditation for some of these same reasons. If I was interested in meditating, but maybe the back was really painful from some physical labor that I've been doing and I wasn't able to do seated meditation, I wasn't able to maybe do walking meditation, I might go to something like a lying meditation to lie down. But in that situation, I had to be very careful to make sure that I didn't fall asleep. Because oftentimes with the way that I meditate, if I was lying, I had a tendency to fall asleep. So I had to be very attentive and alert to the mind. And if I was observing that I was maybe falling asleep, that's where I might also go to standing position. So with lying or seated, if I was noticing that I was sleepy 
or that there were some aches and pains in the body and I needed to move to something like a standing position, I might use standing position. I also use standing position when I, there were times when I was maybe at a bus stop and I knew that I'd be waiting for 10, 15, 20 minutes for a bus rather than just stand there and kind of look around, which sometimes I might do, I might also use that time to stand and actually do some meditation. Or if I'm in line somewhere, like at the DMV getting a driver's license and I know that I'm going to be for a really long time in that situation, I might do some standing meditation, just standing there 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, just doing some standing meditation and kind of incorporate that in to my daily activities. So you can use these different positions in different ways and see what works well for you. You'll find that these different positions work in different situations for different reasons. And the type of meditations that I'm going to teach you today, all of them can be done in the seated, lying, and standing position. The walking position is typically only done for breathing mindfulness meditation. This is the primary form of meditation that the Buddha taught. So when we talk about the four different types of meditations, be sure to understand that they can be done in the first three positions where the walking meditation is being done with just the breathing mindfulness meditation. So let me pause here for a moment and see if you guys have any questions on the basics of meditation. And then just as a reminder, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom to ask any questions that you like. Hi, David. So to clarify on one of your points, when we're meditating, you would say that we should be doing nothing else, essentially? Yes. When we're meditating, we're meditating. That's the one thing that we're doing. We're actively training the mind. Now, when we're gardening or we're walking the dog or we're exercising or driving or doing these other things, we should still be practicing mindfulness, which is awareness of mind. This is where people, I think, are getting confused in some places where they're misunderstanding what meditation is. If you understand the definition that I'm providing, which is this active, dedicated, purposeful training session of the mind, eliminating unwholesome qualities and arising wholesome qualities, then you understand what that is, and I'll help you understand that more and more today. But while we're doing these other activities that we're talking about or any other activities that you might be involved in, you're practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind, but you're not involved in this dedicated, independent, purposeful training session. You're in a business meeting. You're still aware of the mind and practicing mindfulness, or you're walking the dog and you're walking down the street. You're still aware of the mind or you're gardening. You're still aware of the mind. But you're gardening, you are got your hands in the soil, you're looking at planting or uprooting things or watering things or feeding plants, you're involved in that. You're not involved in actively eliminating unwholesome qualities and cultivating wholesome qualities through a dedicated, independent, purposeful training session. Let's get a pass on now. Thanks, James. Hey, uh, as for the standing, medita standing meditation, is it necessary to close eyes while practicing this? I like to close the eyes and I do that most often. There's only one meditation that I do that I do it with the eyes open, but all other meditations I do with the eyes closed. You can try to do meditations with the eyes open. It would add more stimulus into your meditation and it can challenge the mind. But typically when you're learning and even when you 
are moving further along, it's really nice to kind of close down that sense base of the eyes so that you can really focus internally and go inward and do the work on the inner mind rather than you know having stimulus come into the eyes. Yes, thanks teacher, no more question. All right, the next thing that I would like to share with you is this aspect of helping you to understand how to start your meditation sessions and how to conduct them. Because all the meditations that I'm going to be sharing with you today, they're going to need to be in keeping with this particular content that I'm going to be sharing with you of how to start your meditation practice and how to actually conduct a meditation session. So let me share with you guys some kind of baseline things to understand as it relates to all the various meditations that I'll be sharing with you. The first one to keep in mind is that the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. This is really, really important that whatever is going on in the mind, the body is just going to follow it. So when you're getting into meditation position, whether it's seated, lying, standing or walking, you need to make the body comfortable. You don't want it to be painful. You don't want it to be in pain, but you also aren't interested in it being luxurious either. Because if the employee, the physical body is in pain, it's not going to want to take you to go see the boss. Or if the employee is really luxurious and kind of lazy and lackadaisical, they're not going to want to go see the boss. They're not going to take you to go see the boss. So if the body is in this lazy, kind of lethargic, complacent mindset, or if it's in this kind of painful, uptight position, you're not going to be able to access the mind and actually train the mind. So keep in mind that the mind is the boss, the body is the employee. So let's make the employee comfortable. Let's make the employee comfortable so it'll take us to go see the boss, which is the actual mind. Then as you're preparing to do meditation, the Buddha taught to set up mindfulness in front of you before you actually start your meditation. You'll see this in the words of the Buddha as he introduces meditation to his students and he starts guiding them in meditation. He instructs them and gives them guidance to set up mindfulness in front of you before you actually meditate. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. You're going to need to do something to start developing this awareness of mind as you ease into meditation. What you wouldn't want to do is just kind of plop down in the meditation and just start meditating. If you need to do that, you can, but you wouldn't like that to be your kind of normal way of meditating. You would like to develop your practice more where you kind of have this buffer where you kind of ease the mind into meditation by kind of setting up this awareness of mind. So if say you were outside doing something and you were coming into a facility or into your house or into your room or something to meditate, you'd probably take off your shoes. You'd probably, you know, kind of use the bathroom, empty out any kind of organs that need to be emptied out. You might, some people, they do a little bit of yoga I know some people are involved in prayer. They might do a little bit of that. Or what I tend to do often is chanting, is something that I teach in this program is Buddhist chanting, where you can chant and you start becoming aware of the mind, aware of the breath, and kind of ease the mind down into meditation and create this little bit of a buffer 
where you're setting up mindfulness or awareness of mind as you ease into meditation. And then I use that Buddhist chanting on the way out as well to kind of bring the mind out of meditation. And this can be a nice way to ease in and ease out of meditation. If you're not going to use Buddhist chanting, then as I mentioned, you might find some other things that are helpful for you to start becoming aware of the mind so you don't just need to plop down into meditation and actually start meditating without having set up this mindfulness in front of you. Some things to think about in terms of time, frequency, and schedule of meditation. The first thing is, I don't suggest that you necessarily have a schedule of meditation. As soon as you try to ink out a meditation schedule or you try to schedule something, it's not permanent. It's not going to happen. You can put placeholders on your schedule and kind of know generally when you're interested in meditating and when you're going to meditate. But if you try to hold on to that really closely where every morning at 8 a.m. you're planning to meditate or every evening at 8 p.m., if you ink that and you hold on to that really tightly, you're not going to be able to fulfill that permanently. There's going to be some days where you're not going to be able to meditate at 8 a.m. It might be 9 or 10 or 11. Or there's some mornings where you maybe can't meditate at all. And you might have to skip meditation based on what's going on because of the universal truth of impermanence. So in terms of a schedule, I don't suggest that you try to latch on to some fixed schedule. Instead, create some anchor points for yourself. For me, I know that when I wake up in the morning, that's a time that I meditate. And when I go to sleep prior to the mind becoming tired, I will meditate prior to going to sleep. And if I'm doing classes or depending on what's going on, I might even do a midday session as well. And these are the times where I know that I'm going to be meditating. But there's certainly some mornings that I don't meditate. And there's an occasional evening, maybe three or four or five per year that I don't meditate in the evening as well because of impermanence. It just maybe I've been involved in a lot of things. I'm getting ready to go to sleep. The sleepiness is, you know, snuck up on me and boom, I'm so exhausted that I'm not uh, looking to do some meditation. The mind is just too tired because maybe I've been involved in doing some other things that it wouldn't be beneficial for me to do meditation prior to sleep. So there's occasional situations where I won't meditate prior to going to sleep. Whereas if my mind was fixated on this fixed schedule, the mind would be discontent that, oh my goodness, I missed my evening meditation. Oh, I feel so bad now. I feel so diminished and I feel degrading. There's this negative self-talk that might come into the mind. So don't do that to yourself. Instead, have just some anchor points where you know you're going to generally work to meditate maybe in the morning in the evening maybe you have a midday schedule in terms of this is the plan for you that you have this is a certain objective a certain interest that you generally are going to meditate around these times and you work towards that what you would like to build up to is a 30 minute per session or more that's what you would like in terms of the time you would like to have at least 30 minutes or more per session but you're going to need to build up to that. Most people, as they're starting out, they might do 5, 10, 15 minutes of meditation. And that can go on for six months, a year. Who knows? Everybody's a little bit different. So don't put pressure on yourself to be at 30 minutes today. The goal is to gradually build up to that. 
So if you understand that your practice needs to be built up gradually and you need to gradually work towards building up your practice, then you can be okay with the five or 10 minutes or the 20 minutes and just know that you're working to expand your meditation, but you're not fixating on it that it has to be exactly 30 minutes or it has to be exactly 45 minutes every time. Just generally work towards a 30 minute session. I don't suggest that you actually time your meditations unless you absolutely need to, where like if you're meditating in the morning because you need to go to work and if you meditated for more than 30 minutes, then you'd be late for work, then perhaps you need to set your alarm in that situation. But where possible, maybe in the evenings, on the weekends, times when you're off, I don't suggest that you use an alarm because the mind's going to sit there and it's going to crave. Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? And the mind can almost become obsessed with the actual time. Whereas if you don't set an alarm, but instead maybe you just look at what time it is before you start your meditation and then you meditate. And then after you meditate, you kind of look to see what time it is and then do the math to figure out how long you actually meditated for. Because in situations where you set an alarm, the mind can be obsessively thinking about whether it's time yet, or you can be deep in meditation, getting lots and lots of benefits, and then the alarm goes off. Whereas if you hadn't set the alarm, you could have actually continued your meditation and gotten more benefit. So in situations where you don't need an alarm, I don't suggest that you actually use an alarm. That would be ideal. That would be best for you. And then in terms of frequency, the Buddha meditated three times a day, morning, midday, and evening. He makes this very clear in his teachings that he meditated three times a day. And this is absolutely the best way to meditate, and you'll get the most progress and the most benefit out of that. Because you'll start your morning with a meditation session, you'll go four, five, six hours, meditate again, then you'll go four, five, six, eight hours, and meditate again. And there's a lot of training that you're able to do in those three sessions per day. But you may need to build up to that, or you may never really get to three sessions a day. You may end up finding that two sessions is what you would like to do. But if you only are planning on doing one session a day and you miss that session, you'll end up going a whole 48 hours before you actually meditate again just by missing one day or one session. So what you would like to do is shoot for two to three sessions per day and gradually build up to that. And if you're looking at doing two or three sessions and you kind of generally get two or three sessions a day and you happen to miss one here and there, that's okay because that's the universal truth of impermanence that you're not going to be able to permanently meditate three sessions a day every single day for the rest of your life. That's impossible. Nobody would be able to do that. So what you would like to do is set this goal, this objective, and this interest to meditate two or three times a day, 30 minutes or more, and then gradually kind of build up to that so that you can see the changes that are happening to the condition of the mind. As you observe that the mind becomes sleepy during meditation, you can take a couple of different approaches. In some situations where the mind becomes sleepy, it's better to just go to sleep. And when somebody first starts meditating for the first three or six months or so, oftentimes meditation can induce sleep because you haven't really been sleeping well prior to getting on this path. And when you start training the mind and you start getting some training underway, the mind is almost kind of catching up on sleep that it didn't have before. 
So you might find that meditation kind of induces sleep when you first get underway with your meditation. But then you kind of get over that hump and you would like to do something besides just go to sleep each time. What you would like to do is perhaps change positions. Like you heard what I said, that if I was in the seated position or lying position and I noticed that the mind was becoming sleepy and I haven't been meditating that day and I haven't gotten a really dedicated, consistent practice going for that day, then I would switch to standing or walking. And this would keep the mind attentive and alert during meditation. So don't feel like you're doing something wrong if the mind becomes sleepy during meditation. This is very common. But as the mind awakens more and more to enlightenment, then it's going to be more awake. It's going to be more alert. It's going to be more attentive during meditation. And that's why in the seated position, we sit up nice and straight with our spine erect to keep the attentiveness and the alertness in the mind. And if you're noticing that that's not there, then either switch positions or in some cases you might just choose to go to sleep. If you notice physical sensations during your meditation session where maybe there's an itch on the body or you're noticing something like this, I don't suggest that you actually itch the itch. What you should do is train the mind to understand that this little physical sensation is impermanent. You can observe it in the mind that it'll arise, it'll change, and then it'll fade away. This really helps to soak in the universal truth of impermanence into the mind as you're meditating. Now, as you're first starting to meditate, and maybe you don't have the mental discipline to allow the full life cycle of this itch or this physical sensation in the body, then perhaps after five seconds, you might need to actually itch it. And if that's what you do, then okay, that's what you do. But each time you observe a physical sensation in the body, try to expand the amount of time before you actually itch. So if it was a five second generally kind of thing where you had to itch and you just felt the urge to do that, maybe next time try to make it eight seconds or 10 or 15 or 20. And eventually you can get to the point where you've trained the mind to be so disciplined that if you observe an itch in the body, you can just let it go and you don't feel this urge to scratch it where you're wanting the body to be comfortable every single moment that you just feel the slightest little itch and you're having to itch it. Instead, try to maintain your focus on the breath and continue your meditation and just allow the body to go through the full life cycle of the itch. Now, if there's physical pain in the body, that's different. If there's physical pain, like the knee is painful or the hip is painful or you're feeling pain in the back muscles or things like this, the pain is a way to tell the mind, hey, something's wrong here. You should address this. So if you're feeling any kind of pain, there you can switch positions. You can put another cushion under your rear. You can extend your legs. You can do standing. You can do walking. You can do lying. You can change positions because you wouldn't be interested in having the body just sending these signals to the mind throughout your meditation of pain, 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 because you're going to lose the focus of your meditation. Whatever object you're focusing on in meditation, if this pain comes into the mind and there's this elongated pain that you haven't addressed, then the mind's just going to keep feeling pain over and over and over again, rather than actually being able to focus on the object of meditation. So keep that in mind as you're doing meditation about physical sensations. In terms of 
visual stimulation. If you're noticing any kind of visual things that are happening during meditation, like maybe there's bright lights, maybe there's colorful lights, maybe there's shadows that are coming and going, maybe there's certain imagery from the past that's coming into the mind. This is all completely normal as you unravel the mind and as you're working to awaken the mind. You'll see these different things and it, it'll feel sometimes very real that it's actually there in the mind. But this is the mind doing what the mind does. It's very active, especially as you're first starting to train. You can see these lights. You can see different colors. As the mind is awakening, you can have these different visual stimulations. They're normal. You can just understand that they're impermanent, that eventually they'll go away, that there's nothing special that you've done. There's nothing wrong with what you've done. It's completely normal. You don't need to run out and ask somebody, you know, oh my goodness, I saw green during my meditation. What does that mean? What's the meaning of this? Sometimes people are craving this special meaning in the various colors or imagery that they see during their meditation. All of this stuff is just the mind doing what it does. It's very active. It has all these various things that come into the mind. Just ignore it and stay focused on the breath. And over a period of weeks and months, eventually you won't experience those things anymore as the mind becomes more awakened. And then if you have any kind of external stimulus, some people will use music, candles, beads, different scents in their meditation, and all these different things, maybe even a gong or things like this, you're not interested in including those things in your meditation on all your meditation sessions. 80 to 90% of the time that you're meditating, it should be the body, the mind, and the breath. Those are the only three things that you need is just the body, the mind, and the breath. If you can develop your meditation practice and strip away everything else where you've just got the body, mind, and breath, then you can meditate anywhere at any time. It doesn't matter if you're on holiday. It doesn't matter if you're deep in the mountains on a hiking and camping trip. It doesn't matter if you're in the hospital for a period of time. If you can build up your practice to the point where you've stripped away all of this external stuff, then you can meditate at any time, any place. You're not attached. You don't have the mind fixated and craving any particular external stimulus. Whereas if you have a special candle that you only meditate when that candle's lit, or there's this special music that you play, or there's this special app that you use on a phone or something like this, then you're only going to be able to meditate when you have those things with you. And those things are impermanent. You're not going to be able to have those things with you permanently. So if you base your meditation practice around a particular music or beads or a candle or a certain scent or a certain app, when you've built your practice around that for so long and now they're gone, you're going to have a real challenge in your meditation practice. And you're also not really actively working towards the real goals of what Gautama Buddha shared in terms of eliminating certain unwholesome qualities and arising certain wholesome qualities. One of the main things that you're going to see that we're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation is eliminating craving, desire, attachment. This is where the mind has mental longing and a strong eagerness. It's clinging. It's holding on to things very tightly and it doesn't want to let go. So if you train the mind to hold on to music or candles or beads or things like this, 
then you're not working to eliminate the mental longing and strong eagerness. You're not working to eliminate the clinging. You're just reinforcing it. So by letting all of these things go and gradually moving the mind towards being able to meditate with just the body, the mind, and the breath, you're moving the mind closer in the direction of enlightenment. As long as you hold on to these external things, the mind is still clinging, it's still craving. So if you're meditating with these things now, what I suggest you do is gradually phase them out of your meditation practice. So if you're listening to music, maybe what you do is you do one session without music and then two or three sessions with music. One session without it, maybe two or three sessions with it. And then do one session without it and then maybe two sessions with it. And then one and two and one and two and then do one and one and one and one and gradually expand the number of sessions that you're doing without music and shrink the number of sessions that you're doing with music because the unenlightened mind doesn't like change it doesn't like impermanence it's craving permanence so if you just went cold turkey and you stopped listening to music your mind can be shaken up by that and if you'd like to try that, you can. And if you can get off the music that quickly, wonderful. But what you might find is kind of easing the mind away from the music, the candles, the beads, these apps and things like that is going to be much better for you to kind of ease the mind away from it. And it'll feel more comfortable doing that. And once you finally get away from these things, then you will have developed a practice that doesn't have any attachments that you're meditation practice will be unattached to all this external stuff it'll just be the body the mind and the breath which you're going to have all of those three things with you from now until the time that you die when you take the very last breath you'll have these three things always and you'll be able to meditate in all situations so let me pause here and see what questions you guys have remember you can put those into facebook youtube or zoom or you can raise your hand electronically we have a question from Jan on Facebook. So during walking meditation, I should focus on breathing in and out through my nose. Can I also focus on my feet against the ground? With walking meditation, what you do is you actually look straight in front of you and the point of fixation is one meter in front of you. You don't actually focus on the breath. You focus with your fixation through the eyes. You can observe the breath if you'd like, but the fixating point is through the eyes. That's where you should be focused. If you look on our YouTube channel, you'll see a video that I recently published about walking meditation. And I go through in detail and explain to you how to do walking meditation. You're not interested in focusing on the breath. You're not interested in focusing on the feet. It's just through the eyes that you're looking to focus at the ground just three feet or one meter in front of you. That's the way to train the mind during walking meditation. When we're beginning our practice, would you suggest that we have a dedicated space for our meditation? That can really help you, especially the first month or two, is if you have the same place that you meditate, because the mind's going to crave permanence and it's going to feel more comfortable with permanence. So for the first month or two, you might find just one place to meditate and use that place regularly. But then pretty early on, you're not interested in allowing the mind to hold on to this one place that you're meditating. So you'd like to kind of move around and go to different places. So if you're always meditating in your bedroom, for example, maybe you'd like to move to the living room or you'd like to go outside 
or you meditate at a friend's house or a park and you kind of switch it up and maybe you're have a place where you're meditating most often like in your bedroom for example for me that's where i do most of the meditation is in the bedroom but then i also switch it up and meditate in other places as well and that's that other 10 or 20 percent of your meditation practice so 80 to 90 percent of your meditation practice should be the body the mind and the breath with you by yourself and kind of moving around in different locations to train the mind to not grab on and crave permanence but then there's kind of like this 10 or 20 percent of your meditation practice where you might decide to light a candle or you might decide to join a meditation group or you might decide to go do a gong meditation or something like this those are completely fine but what you would like to do is build up the vast majority of your practice where it's just the body the mind and the breath and after about a month or two where you feel their meditation practice is a bit more stable there you would like to start introducing some impermanence to kind of challenge the mind a bit so that it doesn't hold on to the same place of meditating all the time also should we be generally looking for a very quiet place to meditate it really depends you're not going to be able to find a place that's permanently quiet unless perhaps well, it's still not permanent, but it might be during the time that you're there is in a cave, right? If you go down deep in a cave or you go into a sound booth or something like this, you might be able to find a quiet place to meditate. But oftentimes, quietness can be more challenging for a beginning practitioner because things are so quiet, you're dealing with just your, the thoughts. And the thoughts can really bombard you early on in your practice because there's so much bound up in the mind. Instead, recognize that there's going to be sounds around as you meditate and train the mind not to crave permanent quietness. Train the mind to understand that that dog barking is impermanent or the kids outside playing, it's impermanent or whatever other sounds that you might hear around you. Just know that these things are impermanent and train the mind to fixate on the object of meditation regardless of these sounds. That can actually be more beneficial to you than going into quietness. So there's actually people who meditate, and I did this at different times as well, where as you get your meditation practice established, not only do you change locations, but by changing locations, you're changing the lighting, you're changing the sound, you're changing different things that are around you because meditating in your room by yourself versus meditating at a park, there's gonna be different lighting, there are gonna be different sounds, and this can be really helpful and beneficial to the mind because it doesn't crave this permanence of being in the same place all the time. So if your mind craves to meditate in complete silence, it's going to get shaken up whenever it hears sound. So just accept the impermanence of the sound and train the mind to be content whether there's sound or whether there isn't sound. Thank you, David. Let's go back to Basel now. Well, we have a question from therapist. She says, while I meditate, my mind frequently recalls music songs. I keep bringing my awareness back to the breathing, but find I can only keep it there for some seconds before the music starts again. Yeah, so this is the mind clinging. This is the mind holding on. This is what the unenlightened mind does is it's going to hold on to things. And it has this mental longing and strong eagerness, this craving and desire. So what you're doing, if you follow the way that I share 
here in a moment how to do breathing mindfulness meditation as you train the mind more and more in this way and do the things that you need to do outside of meditation, then you'll find that this will diminish and eventually be eliminated from the mind. So right now you might be experiencing this recurring thoughts or recurring music that you hear in the mind as you're actually meditating, but that stuff's not permanent. And if you train the mind in the way that the Buddha taught for breathing mindfulness meditation, you can eliminate it, but it's gonna take time. It's gradual training. There's no instant quick fixes with any of the training of the Buddha. Even the Buddha talked about this gradual training, gradual practice leads to gradual progress. So you're gonna need to really focus in on developing your meditation practice in the way that the Buddha taught, and then you'll still notice that it's gonna take some time to slowly diminish the unwholesome qualities of the mind where it has this craving and this clinging holding on. And as you diminish those unwholesome qualities, then you'll notice that the mind won't experience this sound or this music or these songs that are going on in the mind. But you just need more training to be able to accomplish that goal. Thanks, teacher. No more question. All right. So let me share with you some of the words of the Buddha as we go throughout our class today. I'll be sharing the words of the Buddha with you at different times. But here's a place in his teachings where he encapsulates the four types of meditations that he taught. Now, in the world of meditation nowadays, there's 50, 100, 300, maybe a thousand, or who knows how many different meditations that are out there. And if somebody ran around trying to learn all these different meditations, they're gonna be spread really thin and they're gonna find it really challenging to learn all these different meditations. And these other meditations came about after the Buddha. It's a Buddha who discovers the path to enlightenment who declares the path to enlightenment, and they're the originator of this path to enlightenment. So their teachings are what leads to enlightenment. People who change and modify a Buddhist teachings after their death are actually harming themselves and they're harming other people through changing and modifying his teachings. So if you find yourself wanting to learn 10, 20, 50 different meditations, this is that craving, this is that mental longing and strong eagerness thinking that one more meditation is what it's going to take, where in reality, the Buddha only taught two primary forms of meditation, and then he taught two specialized types of meditation in order to help you get to enlightenment. And the two forms of meditation that are the two primary styles relate to the three poisons that are in the mind. Because if you understand the problems in the unenlightened mind, which we talked about a few weeks ago, as craving, anger, and ignorance, then what these meditations are doing is they're antidoting or they're remedying, they're fixing the problems in the unenlightened mind, antidoting this craving through breathing mindfulness meditation, which we're gonna talk about some more, and we're antidoting this anger, this hatred, this ill will with loving kindness meditation. Those are the two primary styles of meditation that the Buddha taught but you're gonna find all these other meditations out there. Well, if you understand the true problems with the unenlightened mind, then you can more readily understand the actual solutions to those problems. And rather than stretch yourself thin, having to go after all these different meditations, 20, 30, 50 different meditations, you can just focus on the core meditations that the Buddha taught 
get really, really good at those and really deep in your practice so that you can get the real benefit. So you can get liberated from this desire to chase after more and more and more meditations by just focusing on what the Buddha actually taught. And when you understand the problems in the unenlightened mind, then you understand why he actually taught these four and why you actually need them. So these are his words that he was talking about some things prior to this. And then he moves into this discussion where he shares the four different types of meditations that he teaches. So here he says, having based himself on these five things, because he was teaching five things prior to this, the monk should develop further another four things. And these are the four meditations that he says that a student should develop. One, the perception of unattractiveness of the body should be developed to abandon lust. You're going to see me talk about this meditation. Two, loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. This is another meditation that is designed to address very specific problems in the unenlightened mind. Three, mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation should be developed to cut off thoughts. And we're going to talk about what that means, this cutting off thoughts. We're going to discuss it as we go. And then fourth, the perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit, I am. When one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is stabilized. One who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit, I am, which is nibbana or enlightenment in this very life. So these are the four meditations that the Buddha taught. It's that loving kindness and breathing mindfulness meditation, which are the two primary styles. And these other two are specialized meditations that certain people will use and certain people won't need them. But let's talk about them in more detail in a way that you can actually see them for yourself. So here I have them listed in order of how you might end up using them. So as somebody starts first learning meditation, they should start out with breathing mindfulness meditation. This is the number one priority in your meditation practice and the Buddha prioritized this meditation over all other meditations. And it's a primary focus of your meditation practice because it addresses the primary problem in the mind that's causing discontentedness. Remember, this enlightened mental state is to eliminate discontentedness, this anger, this frustration, this sadness, this guilt, this shame, this fear, this boredom, loneliness, shyness, all these conditioned feelings are being caused by craving desire attachment. That's the mind having this longing with a strong eagerness, wanting the objects of its affection. So in breathing mindfulness meditation, when we're doing that meditation, we're focused on the breath and any time the mind wanders off the breath, we cut that off and let it go. Just like the Buddha said, cut off the thoughts. We're cutting that off and letting it go and coming back to the breath. The reason why is because we're training the mind to eliminate in this dedicated, active, purposeful training session to eliminate this unwholesome quality of craving desire attachment. When the mind moves off the breath, 
That's the mental longing and strong eagerness. That's the yearning. That's chasing after the objects of your affection. The mind doesn't want to be in the present moment, just focused on the breath. So this craving, desire, attachment, this yearning arises in the mind where it wants to go to the past or it wants to go to the future or it has these thoughts, these ideas, these perceptions that come into the mind. When you observe that, you cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath, coming back to the fixated object of your meditation and breathing mindfulness meditation, which is the breath. What you're cultivating as a wholesome quality in your meditation is mindfulness and concentration. During breathing mindfulness meditation, you're focused on the breath, developing singleness of mind, getting the mind comfortable and content with just focusing on the breath. I don't need all this other stuff in the world. All I need to do is focus on this breath and I can train this mind to be peaceful and content without anything else, just focused on the breath. So this is developing that right concentration as part of the Eightfold Path, developing singleness of mind where the mind can be in the present moment with singleness of mind, just focus on the breath. And then you're observing that breath and you're observing the mind. You're developing this awareness of mind or mindfulness. The Buddha called it right mindfulness in the Eightfold Path. So by focusing on the breath, you arise this awareness of mind and cultivate this mindfulness. These two wholesome qualities of mindfulness and concentration are working to observe the mind. And when the mind moves off the breath, then you observe that and you cut it off and let it go. That's what breathing mindfulness meditation is. We're going to talk about it in more detail in a moment. Loving kindness meditation is designed to eliminate anger, hatred, ill will, and all those lesser versions like frustration and irritation and annoyance. The mind is going to have that as you go throughout your day and in meditation as well. But we need to eliminate that in order to get to enlightenment. As long as the mind is angered or frustrated or irritated or annoyed, it's not yet enlightened. This is part of those unwholesome qualities that are in the mind, part of those three poisons of craving, anger, and ignorance. So loving kindness meditation is to eliminate this anger, hatred, ill will, and all the lesser versions. And we're cultivating this wholesome quality of loving kindness for all beings, where there's a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. There's this love, there's this kindness, there's this politeness, this friendliness, this respect that comes into the mind. And now when you cultivate that in meditation, then you can now practice that in daily life through your intentions, your speech, and your actions. And you can now bring loving kindness into your day-to-day interactions so that your mind isn't polluted with this anger, hatred, ill will, which motivates unskillful intention, speech, and actions. Because as long as you're putting out aggression, hostility, any of this anger, hatred, or ill will, it's going to affect your relationships with people through your intention, speech, and actions. It's going to motivate unskillful conduct. But when you transform that anger into loving kindness, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, now through your intention, speech, and actions, you can interact with people in a much different way, which is going to produce wholesome results for you. 
because you're no longer functioning through this unwholesome root of anger, hatred, and ill will. Instead, you're functioning through this wholesome root of loving kindness. And it's loving kindness meditation that gets all of that underway, but then you practice it in daily life. Meditation to eliminate sexual cravings is something that some people are going to need and other people aren't going to necessarily need it. In order to get to enlightenment, to that fourth stage of enlightenment where the mind is 100% enlightened, a person would need to eliminate central desire. This is where the mind has craving, desire, attachment through the six sense bases. The six sense bases are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, bodily contact in the mind. The mind is craving pleasant feelings through these six sense bases. And as long as the mind is doing that, then it's going to be discontent. One of the strongest central desires that the mind has is sexual cravings for some people. We crave for this pleasurable experience of sexual intercourse. So a person can actually get to the first and second stage of enlightenment while still maintaining sexual contact. In that first and second stage of enlightenment, the mind will have diminished a significant amount of discontentedness, but there's still discontentedness in the mind. But when or if a person is interested in eliminating their sexual cravings, they might choose to do this meditation in order to help them diminish their sexual cravings in order to get rid of those central desires and then move the mind into the fourth stage of enlightenment. Or if there's somebody who maybe has three, four, five partners currently and they're involved in multiple relationships and they would like to bring that down to one partner, they might need to diminish their sexual cravings by using this meditation. And it can help you if you have multiple partners or if you find the mind is craving pornography or masturbation and doing those things excessively, you might use this meditation to bring that down and temper it. But again, not everybody's going to necessarily need this one. It's a specialized meditation. This is the one that Buddha talked about, about developing the unattractiveness of the body. That's that first one that he was talking about. Then there's this meditation to realize non-self. This one is to eliminate the personal existence view. This is the first fetter out of the 10 fetters. The 10 fetters are the detailed description of what the unenlightened mind is experiencing in terms of unwholesome qualities and pollution of mind. And it's only when the mind eradicates these 10 fetters that it will experience the enlightened mental state that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And one of the things that you need to do is work on eliminating the personal existence view. So in order to get rid of that, you need to do a lot of preliminary work, but ultimately there's a meditation that you can do in order to help you move the mind away from holding on to this personal existence view or the self. And then what you're cultivating there is you're cultivating your understanding of impermanence. This is the Buddha talking about developing the perception of impermanence to eradicate the conceit I am, to realize non-self. So now let's go through and talk about each one of these meditations in more detail. These are some words from the Buddha about breathing mindfulness meditation. And the first little quote here is just kind of a general thing that he said as part of a longer statement that I think is really important to understand as you develop your meditation practice. He said, a pot without a stand 
is easy to tip over. So the pot is the mind. The stand is your meditation practice. So if you haven't been meditating and you just haven't been exposed to it or you haven't been meditating in the way that the Buddha teaches, then your stand isn't very stable. It's not very wide. It's not very firm. It's not very stable for the mind or this pot. So it's really easy to tip over the pot. It's really easy for the mind to become frustrated or shaken up or unstable because it doesn't have this stable stand. But once you develop your meditation practice and as you develop it more and more each day and each week and each month, this stand becomes broader and broader and wider and wider. It becomes more stable. And now the pot is harder and harder to tip over. This is why the mind experiences a diminishing of discontentedness. And it's harder to shake up the mind because it's now got this stable stand. Here's some words that the Buddha said about breathing mindfulness meditation to help you understand how important it is. Now, he talked about breathing mindfulness meditation at multiple parts of his teachings, and we have an entire book dedicated to this in this book series that I wrote, The Words of the Buddha. Volume 7 is dedicated to consolidating the primary teachings that the Buddha shared around breathing mindfulness meditation. So there's a whole book dedicated to all of the different words that the Buddha said about breathing mindfulness meditation. But these particular words help you to see how important breathing mindfulness meditation is in addition to all of his other words that he shared, sharing how important it is. And here's what he says. Monks, there is one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation. That is that one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So this is the Buddha really highlighting breathing mindfulness meditation and showing you that this is the priority in terms of meditation practice. But you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment with just meditation. This isn't the Buddha saying, just meditate your way to enlightenment because he spent 45 years of teaching and there's an entire path where meditation is one component of that path. This is the primary style of meditation that leads to this peaceful mind, to this liberation where the mind is free, to the elimination of discontentedness, to freedom from strong feelings, to this enlightened mental state. So now let me share with you how to actually do breathing mindfulness meditation, which we've taught in other parts of our program. What you would like to do in breathing mindfulness meditation is take one of those positions we talked about, focus on the breath, the sound of the breath or the sensation of the air coming into the nose. The breath is the present moment. You would like to focus on the breath. And whenever the mind is off the breath, cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back to the breath. The goal in breathing mindfulness meditation is not to eliminate thoughts. Even though the Buddha says cut off the thoughts, he didn't say eliminate the thoughts. That's not what you're doing in meditation. 
But instead, what you're doing is you're training the mind to easily let them go. Even when the mind is enlightened and you no longer experience any discontentedness, you will be in meditation and you will have thoughts. You will have occasional thoughts. The mind will be quieted. The mind will be stilled. You'll have these long gaps of time where you won't have thoughts during meditation. You'll just be able to focus on the breath. But in your 30-minute session or however long you do, even when the mind is enlightened, there's going to be the occasional thought. Even being in meditation and realizing how peaceful the mind is when the mind is enlightened, that's a thought. You're going to be in meditation as the mind is enlightened and you'll be like, oh my goodness, the mind is so peaceful. I haven't had a thought for like 10 minutes, but that was a thought, right? Oh my goodness, the mind is so peaceful. I haven't had a thought in 10 minutes. That was your thought. And when the mind does that, you need to observe that cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath. So you're not eliminating the thoughts. You're always going to have thoughts in meditation, but you'll experience these longer and longer gaps where you won't have thoughts. The thoughts will be stilled and quieted. And when you observe that the mind is off the breath, you'll be able to easily, quickly cut that off and bring the mind back to the breath. So we're not eliminating the thoughts. We're just training the mind to be aware of the thoughts so that then when the mind is off the breath, we cut that off and let it go. We're training the mind to be in the present moment, focused on the breath, have this awareness of mind, cultivating these four foundations of mindfulness, and then developing this right concentration or singleness of mind, where the mind's comfortable and content to just focus on the breath and only the breath, not needing anything else and then training the mind to easily let go of the thoughts. Because in daily life, as you're going through life prior to enlightenment, you're gonna experience situations that are gonna come up and you're gonna feel frustration arising in the mind. And if you've done your training in breathing mindfulness meditation, you'll observe that frustration starting to arise and then you'll be able to cut it off and let it go because you've trained in meditation to cut off and let go. So during your daily life, you're going to only be cutting off and letting go of the unwholesome thoughts, the unwholesome discontentedness that is arising. As you observe that in daily life arising, if you've done your work in meditation over a consistent long-term period of time, you'll be able to cut off and let go of any of this unwholesome things that arise, clearing out the pollution in mind. And then these wholesome thoughts can come into the mind in daily life and you can benefit from that. But in meditation, because this is our training time, you're going to cut off all thoughts, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. You're going to cut off and let it go. Cut it off and let it go. Cut it off and let it go. You're going to do this a million and one times, 10 million and one times, 50 million and one times as you're meditating over multiple sessions throughout your life. And what you're doing is you're cultivating that awareness of mind to know that the mind is having a thought. You're cultivating concentration to be able to focus on a single object like the breath. And you're training the mind to easily let go of the thoughts and come back to the breath. And these are qualities that you're cultivating in the mind that then become useful in your daily life as you're experiencing challenges in daily life. And then as you get better and better at that in meditation and outside of meditation, you eventually get to the point 
where frustration never arises or irritation never arises or guilt or fear or shame or boredom or loneliness or shyness or these other discontent feelings, they never arise because you now have this discipline of the mind that whenever discontentedness arises, you're able to cut it off and let it go and kind of jerk the mind back into the present moment. Eventually, the mind gets to the point where it's tired of continually being brought back to the middle that it just sits there and it stays in the middle and no longer longs with a strong eagerness to be somewhere else in meditation and outside of meditation. It no longer has this strong eagerness where it's pulling in all these different opposite directions because you've pulled it back and pulled it back and pulled it back so many times. So you train that in meditation and then you use that in your daily life. So let me see what questions you guys have on breathing mindfulness meditation before we move on and talk about loving kindness meditation. In meditation, shouldn't we be controlling our breath or is it more of an observation of our breath? You should just have a nice natural inhale and exhale, a nice gradual inhale, a nice gradual exhale, not trying to control the breath or force the breath, but just observing the breath as the point or the object of your meditation during breathing mindfulness meditation. That's the present moment. When you breathe, either in or out, that's right now. That's the present moment. So by fixating the mind on the breath, you're training the mind to reside in the present moment. So when it longs for the past, you observe that with mindfulness, cut it off and let it go. Come back to the present moment, which is the breath. Or if it longs for the future or has thoughts or ideas or anything that comes into the mind during meditation, you always bring it back to the breath because that's the present moment. And then as you train the mind to reside there for longer and longer periods of time, outside of meditation, it will be willing to reside in the present moment because you've trained it to be there. And if a person has negative or unwholesome thoughts or emotions that come up during their meditation, is this just the same as any other thought or emotion? Is it just something simply to let go of? Yeah, this is really normal because what's happened during our life is our mind has experienced all these different things. We've experienced hardships and challenges and misery, despair. We've also experienced all these pleasant things and all these enjoyable things that is kind of bound up in the mind. It's almost like wrapping a ball of string and you've got all these experiences that are in the mind. And as you start meditating and training the mind, it's like unraveling the string. And you might have these painful experiences or these pleasant experiences arise in the mind during meditation. And it's almost like reliving those. But you're not interested in reliving those. You would like to cut those off and let it go. Because as long as you allow the mind to dwell in the sadness, it's going to keep being sad. Or as long as you allow the mind to long for the pleasantness of things, then the mind's going to keep longing and craving this pleasantness. So what you do is you cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. And it's normal for the mind to experience these different things. And especially as you first get going, because the mind's got so much bound up in it. But then as you get further and further along in your meditation practice, that's where things get quiet. That's where things get still because you've unraveled the string. So as you get closer and closer to enlightenment and you've purified the mind more and more through meditation and through practicing the Eightfold Path in your daily life, this pollution of mind will get cleared out 
where then the mind can be quiet and still during meditation. Thank you, David. There's all the questions we have at this time. Okay, let's talk about loving kindness meditation then. Loving kindness meditation has been taught as part of this program as well. I did a four part series on this, just like I did with breathing mindfulness meditation. The Buddha describes this when he talks to his son. His son actually ordains with him as a monk during the Buddha's life. And he says to his son, develop meditation on loving kindness. For when you develop meditation on loving kindness, any ill will will be abandoned. So he says it very clearly as in that other teaching that I share with you, in this teaching and in other teachings as well. Loving kindness meditation is to transform any anger, hatred, ill will, frustration, resentment. If you have negative self-talk in the mind, this loving kindness can be really helpful for you to develop in meditation. Every single person on the path to enlightenment is going to need breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation because of those three poisons craving anger and ignorance exist in every unenlightened mind and breathing mindfulness meditation is addressing the craving while loving kindness meditation is addressing the anger the hatred the ill will and all those lesser versions i teach this as part of this program where you focus on the breath, continuing to do breathing mindfulness meditation as a way to ease in to loving kindness. And then you do these affirmations and you create these rings. And then through transforming the mind with these affirmations, you'll notice that the loving kindness or this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well will come into the mind and you'll be able to practice through your intention, speech and actions being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings during your day. And it's going to take you time to eradicate more and more of this pollution so that you can get to the point where you're permanently treating all beings with this loving kindness. It just takes time for you to build up to that and transform the mind and eradicate this unwholesome root of anger, hatred, and ill will arising this wholesome root of loving kindness so this is something that you're going to need and if you haven't learned this yet you'll see it in the four-part series that i did it's important to understand that loving kindness meditation isn't to try to change other people sometimes people take the approach that loving kindness is to send other people loving kindness and somehow change them you can't change other people through your meditation you can't even change people through your speech, right? A person can only change if they choose to change. It's got to be their decision. So when you're focusing on all your practice on this path to enlightenment, it's all about transforming your mind. So this loving kindness meditation is to transform your mind so that then when you go out into the world, your intention, speech, and actions will emanate from this loving kindness. Now, before we change the slide here, James, I would like to just give anybody a heads up that is maybe not comfortable with seeing things that are maybe not viewable for all people. I'm going to be showing you an image of a dead body. This is the meditation to develop the unattractiveness of the body. So if you're kind of a little bit timid of those kind of images, this might be a time to blank your screen or just kind of look away or maybe just close your eyes for a moment. Or you can take the other approach where you, if you are uncomfortable seeing dead bodies, that you keep your eyes open in order to help you train the mind. Because this next meditation that I would like to share with you is how you develop the unattractiveness of the body. 
So go ahead and switch there, James. So here, this is the meditation to eliminate sexual cravings. This is called to develop the perception of unattractiveness should be developed to abandon lust. So if you have craving, desire, attachments for sexual contact, and you have multiple partners, and you're trying to bring that down to one partner, or you're trying to extinguish from the mind the craving of having sex and sexual intercourse, what you end up doing is you find some pictures that you can view dead bodies. Now, some people actually go to an actual corpse and actually be in the presence of an actual corpse because you get the smell as well, but you don't really have as many chances of that in a Western country. Here in Thailand and in other places, they will bring dead bodies into the home when your relative passes away. The dead relative will stay in your home for about three to five days as everybody comes to say their goodbyes. Or it might stay at the temple for three to five days before they burn it. And then sometimes in certain temples, they will burn it on an open fire and people can sit around and you can actually smell and hear the body being burned and some places will do it this way. But if you don't have access to an actual corpse, you might do it with pictures like this. And the reason why the mind has this desire for sensual pleasure is because it's very pleasing to the physical body, pleasing to the mind to experience sexual intercourse. But also what you see in the physical body is you see this outer layer of skin and hair and clothes, jewelry, makeup, all these different things that we do to the physical body in order to beautify it. So the way that you develop the unattractiveness of the body in the mind is you train through meditation to look at a dead corpse and see true reality, to be able to see the true reality of the body where you see the organs, you see the flesh, you see the bones, you see the body in unattractive state. And this helps to train the mind away from looking at the body as something pleasurable. Instead, look at it as being unattractive. So if you would like to do this meditation, you can reach out to me for some personal guidance. I can help you with that. It's described in chapter 11 in detail. And what you'll end up needing is a picture like this that you find unattractive. And you can meditate with your eyes open, staring at this object of the meditation and training the mind to see true reality for the body for what it is, which is this unattractiveness. So now let's go to the fourth meditation, which is meditation to realize non-self. This is how you develop the perception of impermanence in order to eradicate the conceit I am. This personal existence view, this fetter of personal existence view, it's part of the ego, it's part of conceit, and we're going to be discussing this in chapter 16 in about five weeks from now. That's a really detailed chapter that you're going to be interested in reading prior to class and maybe even after class as well, because you'll need to really deeply understand this personal existence view, this fetter of conceit and something that we call the ego. And the mind has a lot of challenges and causes itself a lot of difficulties because of this conceit I am and because it holds on to this physical body and this self-identity in the mind, thinking that this is the permanent self. As long as the mind is holding on to this permanent self or this personal existence view, 
and it's holding on to this conceit or this arrogance, this pride, the mind isn't going to be liberated to enlightenment because this arrogance and pride, this holding on to the self-identity and the self-image, as long as the mind is doing that, it's going to keep experiencing discontentedness over and over. So as a practitioner develops the Eightfold Path and really gets that underway to a certain extent and they start getting into what we call the jhanas, which I talked about three months ago, this is where we start kind of suggesting to you to incorporate this meditation in order to start eradicating the conceit I am, where you start training the mind to not associate with this physical body or this mind as being who you are as a person. You are not this physical body. This is a physical body, but it's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. That's not who you are. This self-identity in the mind, it's there, but that's not who you are. You know. So in order to let that go, there's a whole lot of preliminary work that needs to be done first, but then ultimately you get to the point where you start using this meditation. You wouldn't be able to just start using this meditation right away in order to eradicate personal existence view and eradicate conceit. There has to be a whole lot of other preliminary work. And that's why I suggest for people to wait until they get to the jhanas before they start incorporating this meditation. And you should be doing this with the guidance of a teacher because you're going to need to have three, four, five, six talks with a teacher to understand the universal truth of non-self, to understand what personal existence view is, to understand what the self-image, self-identity is, to understand what this fetter of conceit is, to understand what arrogance and pride is, how that manifests itself. There's a whole lot of preliminary work with those things, the Eightfold Path, with breathing mindfulness meditation, with these other meditations like loving kindness before you can move into doing a meditation like this. And there's also some other things that you're going to do in your daily practice in terms of how you speak and how you think about this physical body and this mind before this meditation is really going to be able to help you make progress to eliminate the self or personal existence view. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions about loving kindness meditation, the meditation to eliminate sexual cravings, or meditation to realize non-self. As a beginner, is there any ratio of, that you would suggest between these meditations that you've shown us? As a beginner, I don't suggest that you do the meditation to realize non-self or the sexual cravings. Those two you can just leave to the side. And even loving kindness meditation, you can leave that to the side. I suggest that someone spend a good month or two building up their breathing mindfulness meditation practice first. And then once you feel that stabilized, then bring in your loving kindness meditation. And then your breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation is there for about six months to a year, helping to train the mind and eradicate the pollutions of those unwholesome qualities of craving and anger while you're arising the wholesome qualities of mindfulness, concentration, as well as loving kindness. So doing that for a good six months to a year while you're working on developing all the other aspects of the Eightfold Path. Then at some point, depending on your practice, you're going to start observing the mind through the Eightfold Path is getting into the jhanas. And that's the point where you would really like to start working to eliminate the personal existence view 
and you may even decide to start working on eliminating sexual cravings. Now, if you're having a lot of trouble with your moral conduct and your sexual cravings are more extensive, you might bring that one in, you know, at three months or six months or nine months. This is where it's good to be working with a teacher that can help provide you some guidance of when's the appropriate time to be incorporating these different meditations. Let's go to Basan now. Kayla has a question. She says, for loving kindness meditation, is it better to have a rough idea of the rings of who you want to include beforehand? I find I pose for a few breaths to figure out who is next. It's usually a good idea before you go into your meditation that you kind of know what rings you're going to be doing. But then also don't cling to that and don't hold on to it. So if you're in meditation and you kind of had decided to meditate with certain rings, but you're realizing this anger that you thought was gone for someone in your past arises during your meditation, don't cling to what you had decided prior to meditation. Go ahead and incorporate them into your meditation. So allow your meditation to be impermanent and flexible. Go in with a certain objective, a certain goal, but then be flexible to allow that to change if it needs to. Marian has a question. She says, isn't there a concern that someone who has extreme sexual craving, that viewing, that viewing a dead corpse may encourage necrophilia? I've never seen that happen before because typically the dead corpse is helping the mind to see true reality because if they're having extreme sexual cravings, it's because the mind isn't seeing true reality. It looks at the physical body in the state of being alive and having a certain sense or a certain view or a certain appearance that that's attractive and we want to have sex with this physical body. So by viewing a corpse, it trains the mind to develop this unattractiveness, that the body is unattractive and it's not something that we should aspire to have sex with. So when or if somebody decides to actually move towards this meditation is up to each individual. They may or may not decide to do that and each person is a bit different. And this is why working with a teacher is really important. But what some people might choose to do, depending on where they are in their practice, they might choose to get to that first or second stage of enlightenment and kind of hang out there for a while, working on all the other aspects of the path in order to eliminate things like conceit and arrogance and pride and some of these other fetters. But they can diminish their discontentedness in that first and second stage of enlightenment pretty significantly but they're still gonna have discontentedness around sexual cravings. So you can do all the other work on this path and still be having sexual contact in that first and second stage of enlightenment. But when or if somebody's ready to then eliminate sexual cravings, this meditation is there for somebody who needs it and finds it valuable and they work with a teacher to be able to do that. No more question for now. All right, so just to kind of summarize all of these meditations for you guys, this is the same slide that I showed you guys earlier. These are all the four meditations that the Buddha taught. You would be interested to focus on breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation at the beginning of your practice. And for a pretty extended period of time, you can get really, really deep in developing these two meditations because that's what's gonna transform those three poisons or those three unwholesome roots or 
extinguish those three fires. This is what you need in order to do that. And then there's other aspects of the Eightfold Path. It's helping you outside of meditation to work towards extinguishing those three unwholesome roots as well. So you don't need to go out and learn 20, 40, 50 different meditations. You can just focus on these two. And then as you find that you need help with sexual cravings or you're observing that the mind's moving into the jhanas and you would like to focus on eradicating the conceit I am and eliminating this personal existence view, that's where by that point you will surely be working with a teacher because you wouldn't be able to get to the jhanas by just mistake. You would really need to be putting together a whole lot of teachings and really develop your practice really well just to be able to get to the jhanas. So if you're getting into the jhanas, you will be working closely with a teacher to have gotten there. And then with that same person, that relationship, you should then be able to start focusing on this meditation to realize non-self, but doing all the preliminary work before actually using that. You wouldn't be interested to do any of these meditations without the guidance of a teacher. So it's really important that you have that because you wouldn't be able to awaken the mind just by yourself. You're going to need that support and guidance along the way. So the next thing to understand is that you should never, ever, ever give up on your meditation practice. The Buddha shared this teaching where he said, meditate monks, do not be complacent, lest you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. He essentially is saying, you know, don't ever give up because you're going to regret it should you not be meditating. When you're discontent, when that anger arises, when the guilt or shame or fear or boredom or loneliness comes into the mind, if you choose to not meditate and be complacent, that's your choice. And you can totally choose to take that approach if you like. But you're going to regret it when you're experiencing the discontentedness. If you would have just been meditating and building up your practice more and more, you can observe this diminishing of discontentedness. And ultimately, perhaps you might get to the point where you've completely eliminated discontentedness 100%. But you'll never get to that if you are complacent or if you give up. So even if you go a period of time without meditating, don't ever give up. I went for a period of time of about three, three and a half years without meditating. This was one of the worst times of my life that I wasn't meditating for those three, three and a half years. But ultimately, I went back to meditation and that's what ultimately helped me to get to where I am today. So even during that time for those three, three and a half years, I probably would have said, yeah, I've given up. I'm not going to be meditating anymore. But ultimately, I ignited the practice, I invigorated the practice again, I developed the enthusiasm to get back into meditation because I never gave up. Even as the mind was experiencing a lot of difficulties along the way and progressing through the meditation practice for all those months and weeks and days, there's times where you can just feel like, oh my goodness, this is just so much hard work because it is quite challenging to awaken the mind or otherwise everyone would already be enlightened. But as you're experiencing those challenges, just don't ever give up because the only other option is to go back to being angry, go back to being frustrated and irritated and feeling guilt and shame and boredom and loneliness and shyness and resentment and jealousy and all these other discontent feelings. So the path that you're walking while it might be challenging at times 
It might be even feel pretty difficult at times. Those challenges and difficulties are impermanent. They're not permanent. You can overcome those. But if you give up, you're not going to be able to overcome those challenges. So just be sure that you never, ever, ever give up. Even if you go two or three days without meditating, it's okay. Get right back into it. Or you go a week or two or three without meditating. It's okay. Get back into it. Your enlightenment isn't going to be determined based on missing meditation today or missing meditation for a week. If you choose to stop meditating for a week, that's not going to get you to the point where you can attain enlightenment. Even when I wasn't meditating for three, three and a half years, that's not going to inhibit you from attaining enlightenment. What is going to determine whether you attain enlightenment or not is once you miss meditation, what do you do next? It's that next decision that's going to be determining whether or not you attain enlightenment or not. So you can go a period of time where you're not meditating, but you're going to regret it because you're going to experience discontentedness. That's why for those three years, three and a half years, it was the worst time of my life. Whereas if I would have stayed dedicated to the practice, I would have been able to perhaps transcend all of those difficulties and avoided all of that. So essentially by delaying meditation for three, three and a half years, I elongated the suffering. I elongated the discontentedness. So if you miss a day here or there, or you miss a week here or there, okay, that's what has happened. What you would like to do is get right back into it and continue your practice. You can't determine whether someone's going to attain enlightenment, whether they miss one day or one week or even one year of meditation, because meditation benefits accumulate over time. In order to get to enlightenment, you'll need to accumulate the benefits of meditation over a year or two or three. In the Buddhist case, he trained for six years before he attained enlightenment. So he accumulated the benefits over a six-year period. So if you miss meditation today, while we would like to ensure that we're meditating regularly on a consistent basis, and we would like to not miss those days, when we miss a day here or there, don't beat yourself up. Don't fall off the wagon. Don't feel like all is lost because that would be the mind craving permanence and thinking that if you miss one day, you've kind of messed up everything. Or if you've missed one week, you've kind of messed up everything. Instead, realize that your enlightenment isn't going to be determined on missing one day or one week. Instead, just get right back into it, ramp up your practice, and never, ever, ever give up. That's why we have those Wednesday classes where you can come together and you can get encouragement, you can get support, you can get motivation, where you can be training together with other members of our community. This is why I have classes here in Chiang Mai. I have courses here in Chiang Mai. I have retreats. I also travel to different places. So as you come into meeting with other people as part of this community, this can really invigorate your practice. So while I said 80 or 90% of your practice should be by yourself with the body, the mind, and the breath, there's that other 10 or 20% of it where you can engage with others and meditate as part of a community and really invigorate and encourage your practice, really motivate it through the support of others. But you can't do all of those things and have your meditation attached 
to meeting with other people. So that's why 80 or 90% of your practice should be with just you, just the body, the mind, and the breath, just this being of whoever this being is, is meditating alone where you don't need all these other things. And this is where you'll see the real progress in your meditation practice. So this is everything that I had to share with you guys today. Let me see what questions you guys have about anything that we talked about today or any other questions you guys have related to the path to enlightenment. You can ask those questions through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Put those in the comment section or raise your hand electronically to ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. I was wondering, David, what impact does the meditation practice have on our karma? So our karma is cause and effect or action and result, the results of our decisions. Our decisions are going to determine whatever results we experience. Anything that we're experiencing in this life is based on our decisions. When we decide to meditate, that's the best decision that you could ever make. The Buddha says that breathing mindfulness meditation is the highest quality karma that you can create. And loving kindness meditation is the second highest. The reason why is because when you're clearing out the pollution of mind and you're arising these wholesome qualities, this is going to put the mind in a very different position to now interact in the world in a different way. So you're going to be improving the results of your decisions by making the decision to eradicate pollution from the mind and arise these wholesome qualities. So by you making a consistent, dedicated effort to have this ongoing meditation practice where you're consistently deciding to do meditation, you're gonna be continually purifying the mind, getting rid of this pollution, and arising these wholesome qualities so that now you can improve the quality, the condition of the mind and the quality and the condition of your life. And by doing this, you'll make better and better decisions in the world. And now your personal and professional relationships can blossom because you're not carrying around all this pollution in the mind. If we're meditating and we're finding a sense of calm and mindfulness in our meditation, do you have any advice on how to carry that over into our daily life? The way that you carry that over is stay diligent with the Eightfold Path. Understand the Eightfold Path in detail and be sure that you're ramping that practice up in your daily life to be practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration in your daily life. The reason why meditation is so beneficial is because you're practicing all eight steps at one time for a consolidated period of time. But what you're interested in accomplishing is moving this eightfold path more and more into your daily life in your daily interactions so that now it's not just in meditation that you're practicing the full path, but it's in your daily life as well. This is how you continue the benefits of your meditation. Your meditation is going to be that perhaps 30-minute session in the morning and evening. So that's only about an hour of your day, but you've got 24 hours in your day. So you've got this whole other part of your day Whereas if you aren't on top of your practice of the Eightfold Path, then you're just being complacent. So you need to be sure that you're learning and understanding and practicing the Eightfold Path in all different aspects of your day. And that's how you be sure that the mind is being constantly trained, not just in meditation, but throughout your day as well. 
And it's as you train the mind to eliminate the pollution that then you're going to experience that it's effortless to practice these teachings on a moment by moment, day by day basis. Thank you, David. Let's get a Well, while meditation is a good way, is a good tool to practice a right concentration and singleness of mind, doing one thing at a time. If one went out for a walk with a friend, how can one practice doing one thing at a time while one needs to be walking and talking at the same time? Yeah, so as we're taught by the Buddha, he teaches that when you're walking, you're walking, and when you're talking, you're talking, and when you're sitting, you're sitting, just doing one thing at a time. And that's what you would ultimately like to get to in your practice, where you're not eating food, watching TV, and talking on the phone at the same time, because your mind is going to be rapidly cycling from eating, watching TV, talking on the phone, eating, watching TV, talking on the phone. And this is why the mind becomes overactive. By bringing the mind down to singleness of mind, where you're doing just one thing at a time, not just in meditation, but outside of meditation too, this is how you train the mind to have concentration and focus and clarity of mind because it's just doing one thing at a time. And this is what you should do in most situations where when you go out for a walk, just go out for a walk and you're just walking by yourself perhaps. You're not walking and listening to a podcast and listening to music. While you're maybe doing those things now, gradually transition to the point where you can just go out and walk. Or when you're listening to music, you're just listening to music. Or when you're listening to a podcast, you're just listening to a podcast, for example. Or when you go out with a friend that you understand that this is a very rare situation where you're walking, but you're talking to your friend as well. But while you're doing this, you're being very conscious, very deliberate, very intentional about your walk. And you're being very deliberate, very intentional about your conversation. So that while you may be involved in two different activities, you're walking and you're talking, the mind is only focused on one thing at a time. So while you're talking to your friend, you're putting together very well thought out speech and you're being very deliberate in your speech, ensuring you practicing all five factors of well-spoken speech. But then when you're listening to them talk, you just focus on the walk and that's all you're doing. While you may be involved in these multiple activities, you're just focusing the mind in one thing at a time. So for example, let's just say we're gardening and let's just say we need to plant this plant. And in order to plant the plant, we need to figure out where it goes. We need to dig the hole. We need to put the plant in and then we need to cover it up. Then we need to water it. Well, each one of those tasks is just one task, and we're focused on just one task at a time. While we're digging this hole for this one plant, we're not thinking about the next plant that we need to plant. We look at the situation, we look at where we would like to plant this particular plant, we've made that decision, and now we dig that hole, and we're just focused on digging that hole. We're not thinking about what we're gonna do tomorrow. We're not thinking about dinner tonight. We're not thinking about the next plant. We're not even thinking about watering the plant. We're just focused on digging that hole and only digging that hole. And once we're done with that hole, then we place the plant in the hole and we just focus on placing the plant in the hole. So while we're doing these multiple activities of like walking and talking, 
while we're involved in these different activities, we only limit the mind to focus on one thing at a time. That's the singleness of mind. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. Well, I guess I'll just thank all of you for joining us for the class today and at the same time apologize to anyone who's on Facebook or YouTube that I wasn't able to display all the various visual aids that I had prepared for you guys. And those of you guys that made it into Zoom, welcome. Glad that you found us here because here we have a much better facility to be able to interact and show things. We have a, a little bit more control over the technology here in Zoom where the live streaming, there's a lots of different pieces of software in between that kind of sometimes might inhibit us from being able to do the things that we would like to do. So thank you on Facebook and YouTube for any of you guys that are continuing to learn. Thank you guys for coming into Zoom. Thank you guys for attending the live classes. Any of you guys that are watching this on the replay, I really appreciate that you guys are taking the time, effort, energy, and resources to diligently learn these teachings because the more that you learn and you practice these teachings to be able to see the truth for yourself, the condition of the mind is just going to gradually improve and you'll see for yourself that these teachings of the Buddha are leading exactly where he said they would to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where the mind has eliminated all discontentedness and can experience this liberation or this freedom. And as you learn and practice, you'll see this to be true for yourself. Learning and practicing these teachings is the very best thing that you could ever do for yourself, those close to you, and all of humanity. So thank you all for your determination, your dedication, and your diligence. In our future classes, we're going to be covering next Sunday, chapter 12, which is craving is the problem, what is the solution? We're going to go through and talk about how to identify specific cravings in the mind and what do you do in the situation where you're outside and you're observing that the mind is having this craving, this desire, this yearning. What do you do in these situations? So I'm going to help you understand how to identify these cravings, how to get your arms around them, how to dissolve them, not just with meditation, but with other teachings as well. This is completely new, something that we haven't been discussing in this program yet. So that's going to be in chapter 12. Then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. So if you guys have not been joining us and you would like to join for that either live or on the replay, you can be meditating together with us. If you have been joining us for that, then wonderful. You're welcome to join on Wednesday for breathing mindfulness meditation where we can be training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment in arising this mindfulness and concentration. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I'll see you in a future class. See you next time. Have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.